the best fried chicken in Texas. Rody's Country Fried Chicken. Texas born, Texas raised. A chicken joint with 35 years of service to our community. Thanks to our loyal customers and social media followers. Come try the best gizzards in Texas, the best tenders in Texas, and the best chicken in Texas. Call us at 830-773-9189. 830-773-9189. Don't forget, we have curbside service and delivery by DoorDash. Or find us on Facebook, Rodie's Chicken. R-O-D-E-E-S Chicken. Like us on Facebook. Like us on Facebook. The best fried chicken in Texas. Rodie's Country Fried Chicken. Chicken. Having sold over 400,000 copies of their hit album, Surprise Attack, this band, Tora Tora, I'm talking about, sold close to half a million copies, guys and girls. I mean, who can say that? Wake up in the morning and say, hey, I sold half a million copies of my album. Not many people. Only, you gotta be out there, a band, a professional band, just like Tora Tora is and was. I'm speaking of frontman Anthony Corder, who spent some time talking to us about Tora Tora and the history of Tora Tora and this and that. Uh, they also have an album, the follow-up hit album, Wild America, which uh, is also was also released on A&M Records, produced by John Hampton and Arthur Payson. Uh, that album's got a couple of jams on there, real good jams, Amnesia, Faith Healer, dead man's hand and so on and so forth and then they had a jam on the soundtrack for bill and ted's excellent adventure the song titled dancing with a gypsy anyways uh this band you might have seen them in mtv back in the day uh they got uh their latest album it's not brand brand new 2021 it's not it's uh i believe it's 2019 uh correct me if i'm wrong uh bastards of beale that's her latest effort latest great album great material and let's play a jam from their latest album bastards of beale let's check out their latest jam son of a prodigal son here it is tora tora son of a prodigal son
I ask him the question, I ask Anthony, uh, why the title Bastards of Beal? And, uh, and he reveals why. So, if you know their history, the band's history, you'll know why Beal means Beal. So, Bastards of Beal, uh, check it out, support Torah Torah on social media formats, and uh, buy, stream, download their material, purchase their merchandise, and uh, don't forget to support us too. Uh, support jrocksmetalzone.com, <clears throat> support us on our podcast, that metal interview podcast, all social media platforms. Uh, thank you for subscribing. Don't forget to push that button, subscribe, share, and ring the bell. Anyways, let's talk to Anthony Corder frontman for Tora Tora enjoy congrats on bastards of Beal frontiers uh, awesome straightforward rock and roll man uh, it's awesome to me and to a lot of people uh, talk to us about the making of this record and uh, why the title uh, bastards of Beal uh, what's behind that awesome man gosh I'm I'm so excited to talk to you man I appreciate you just sharing some time with me today um My frontiers uh has been uh, uh, amazing. We uh, we knew of the the label. Um, I actually had was introduced to it years back. Um, we have had a real good friend, Jimmy Jameson, that played in the band Survivor. You know, he had done some some albums with them. Okay. And uh, Jimmy, back in the day, had had sang on the uh, the Tora Tora albums. He had sang backup and stuff. If he, if he was in town, he would come in and do some of the recording with us. And, uh, but anyway, we just, we knew that the, uh, the label and a lot of our, our friends that we, that we knew and, and bands that we had toured with and stuff had worked with them over the years and, uh, the, the timing was just right, you know? We, uh, we hadn't let out a new record in a really long time. Uh, yeah. Patrick, our bass player, had gone through, uh, a health issue, man. He was actually diagnosed with cancer and oh, we've wow. all been buddies since we were kids. We went to high school together. Uh, anytime it's something with your health, you know, and something like cancer, it's serious. You know, we uh, had some crazy lifestyles and stuff a long time ago, so we were thinking about that kind of stuff. And uh, anyway, uh, he had a, he was really lucky, man. It was like divine intervention or something. He went to the doctor for something else. Wow. And when they were checking, checking him, uh, he, they saw this cancer and they said it's at the very beginning stage it was a super aggressive cancer but they caught it right away and they said we're going to be able to to get it and you're going to make a full recovery and you're going to be back you know back to good health and uh as soon as he got a a a clean bill of health this was probably uh this was probably uh, around 2016 when he had a when he had a free uh Good help. Excuse me, man. Uh, we just got excited. He, he kind of had a new perspective on life. And uh, we were excited. He was healthy again. And so uh, he just said, man, I want to play. He said, let's get out and do some shows. I don't care if it's, you know, five people or 50,000 or whatever. Let's just go play shows. And so, uh, so uh, in the process of doing that, we got invited onto the Monsters Rock Cruise. Okay. And we ran into a bunch of our friends and, and uh, bands, and we got to see a bunch of bands we hadn't seen in forever, and some of them that we had toured with and all that. And we came off of that just feeling really good, and it just so happened Frontiers reached out to us right after that. They said, you know, would you be interested in recording a new project? 
it looked like he could walk in at any second of that kid. <laughs> And uh, oh. the rooms are amazing. Everybody from Bob Dylan to Robert Plant, he was one of my favorite influences. They all recorded there. So, I mean, I was standing right where they were standing, singing the record uh, and doing the, you know, the recordings or whatever. But, uh, man, it was so cool because the studios are downstairs. There, there's like two uh, studios and some little suites downstairs. And they have a lot of the gear and stuff stored there and some of the, you know, little storage closets and all that. But if you go upstairs in the building, there's this big room and it's got red shag carpet, man. It looks like 1970. And they had these neon lights and went all the way around the whole rim of the room and they changed colors all the time. Nice. And yeah. that, that room was kind of like the distribution center for, for Sam back in the day. You put all the, the product in there, all the, the physical copies and everything of the records and the 45s and the albums and everything. And you can see it in our video, um, The Son of a Prodigal Son, the, the single that we did off the record. We shot it at, at Sound Film Studio, part of it. And, um, okay. Um, the other part of it, we shot that on Bill Street. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. But um, anyway, you kind of see that room. And then there's a third floor in the studio where all the offices were. And uh, there's like where the, the secretary's desk was, the general manager. And then there's a bar. They built a bar up there, and it was decorated like the 50s, man. It was still there. It still had liquor and it. You could go over and get, get a little sip of something if one, two. And then straight, straight ahead, when you walk up the stairs, it's Sam's office, and the doors are closed. You can't, you can't take any pictures there. They do tours and stuff, and they won't let you in there. Well, the crazy thing is, during the recording of our album, we, we had done all the basic tracks, and I was going to go back and sing uh, one weekend. And it had been on the books and everything. And I got a call. Um, Jeff, our producer, called me and said, Hey, man, there's this uh, uh, issue with the scheduling. He said, William Bell, who I don't know if your listeners know who this guy is, but he was on Stax Records. He's a soul singer. He's probably about 70 or late 70s, early 80s. He's an icon, man. I'm not kidding. But he wanted to record at, at Soundville Studio the day that I was going to be down here. And, uh, <laughs> So I was like, you know, what am I going to do, man? This guy's a legend. We love stacks and everything growing up in Memphis. And, and I was like, man, of course, I don't care. You know, so just, you know, put me in another room or or uh, put me in a closet. I don't care. <laughs> and uh, so they asked me, they were like, do you want to record in Nashville? You know, there's tons of studios. There's other studios in, in Memphis. And I said, no, I want to do it in Memphis. We've done the whole record there. I want to do my scene in there. And so they said, okay, we'll figure it out. Well, man, I went down there, and I walked in, and they said, well, come here, we want to show you something. And uh, I could hear William Bell in the other room, and I mean, it was like going to church, man. They had an organ player going, and a guitar player, and he was singing and stuff, and it, it was just like a spiritual moment, man. Oh, wow. And so they said, well, come here, we want to show you, you know, show you something else. And we started up the stairs, man, and I thought they were taking me and then you go up to third floor. When I went on that third floor set of stairs and looked, Sam Phillips' office was open and my freaking microphone was set up in there. Oh. And then it, it was crazy. I walked in, his desk was sitting there. It had a, uh, a built-in jukebox, man. They said, you're looking at like, what was the first iPod, man? This guy had all his singles in there and he picked the phone up and sell, sell songs, sell records all day. He, they said he'd call ahead and tell his, his uh, assistant, his secretary, what, what record to have ready when he got to work so he could get on the phone and start working his albums. 
got it sitting there, and then there's these leather white chairs, man. Uh, that red shag carpet was in there, these red uh, white chairs were sitting there. And each one of them had a big, huge ashtray next to it. Like, it looked like they, they used to smoke cigars in there, so it looked like they were getting ready to have a meeting. Wow. And there was a TV, a uh, big box TV in there, and it had a drawer on it that was pulled out, and it had a Roy Orbison 45 sitting on it. And so the whole time I was recording my record, I was turning around looking at, at this little 45 record, man. I mean, it was it was just so inspiring. It was so cool. And we did the whole record. We did it really fast. We did it about, uh, I think, nine days. We went in, we got basic tracks, and uh, Keith did some guitar work, and I did some singing. But we did it really raw. We didn't, we didn't, uh, we didn't do a, a ton of overdubs. We wanted it to sound like us. We just said, man, let's just do it like it would sound if you come out and see us live. Let's just kind of go raw and do it down and dirty. And uh, it was just really fun. It was so inspiring. Uh, and, uh, and Jeff was wonderful. The guy that was recording with us, he was a, he's a brother to us, man. I mean, we, we used to stay up all night in the studio with him listening to records. And, you know, he would work in the studio with us all day, and the rest of the people would leave. The studio would close, and the other producers would leave and everything. And he would have to stay with us in the studio so that we didn't touch anything to erase the music that we had recorded. And they're like, you can do anything you want to except hit that button over there, that red button, don't touch that. <laughs> and so we would stay in there all night. Man, we would drink and party and invite friends in and we'd crank our record, you know, our recordings up and then we'd play music that, you know, that we were listening to back then, you know, whoever it was we were into at the time. And, but he would stay with us, and then some nights we would keep him in there until they showed back up for work the next day. We were still in there listening to music and talking and playing and partying, and he'd have to start work again with us there with him, you know? <laughs> and uh, it was just funny. We told a bunch of crazy stories on each other, and um, it was just a great experience. I mean, he told us before we went in, he said, I'm going to make this, like, really super relaxed, you know, because we looked at him and said, hey, man, we're not the little 20-year-old kid that was in the studio with you, you know, a long time ago. We've kind of got some some mileage, you know, yeah. and uh, we, we just wanted to make sure we had a good representation of ourselves, and, and he did it. We, we just felt really comfortable, and we did it really fast, and that's kind of how we wanted to do it. We said, man, let's just do it and go in and and nail this thing and uh, yeah. so but we did a ton of work before we went in the, the, the guys in the band did a lot of rehearsals and stuff they're they're really close to each other in Memphis so they they kind of worked the arrangements and stuff together once we had written the songs uh, the three of them had kind of got in the room and got everything kind of tightened up and they just needed me to show up and, and uh, you know know the words and, and be ready to rock when I came in for my, my final rehearsals and stuff so Wow, what a um, it was, what, a, what an experience, man! What a story! Wow, it was just so cool, man. I'm telling you, I, I got goosebumps talking to you about it because we had just such a good time. You know, for us to have been friends for as long as we've been, uh, you know, friends. Keith and Patrick, the bass player, uh, guitar player, have known each other since they were about eight years old, and um, Patrick and I and Keith and John and them, I met them when we were probably, I don't know, 11th grade or something in high school. So we've been through all kind of crazy stuff, man. We've, we've been on the, the highest highs and, and getting record deals and all that. And we've been walking through the, you know, dark valley together when the record deal was gone and everybody was trying to figure out what was going on. And, yeah. um, I, I, read, I read a yeah. story where uh, 
you say you mentioned you you were a senior in high school when uh, Tor Tori was happening uh, when all this was happening was this was this a pre Tor Tori you know when the, like the school parties or was this during when you got signed were the parties still going on or, or it was it was as we were developing you know I think I was uh, I actually left high school my senior years of school to do stuff with with Keith and them we, we started getting to the point where we had won some some uh, competitions some local competitions and we won studio time and we started doing some uh, we did a production deal with the studio Ardent Studios in Memphis and that's when it kind of everything kind of shifted because we kind of started getting serious we were like man this is we might could get in here and record some some good uh, material and put it out and we kind of did a little EP on our own and uh, it, it got on the radio uh, there was a local DJ uh, named Malcolm Riker he worked for a radio station in Memphis called Rock 98 and he did a, a locals only show and it uh, it was awesome because the station where geographically where Memphis is is we're in the corner uh, of the state like the, the, the southwest corner of the state so we're we're up against Arkansas and Mississippi and Alabama okay. and so he was broadcasting over all those areas and so he got people on the radio from all those different areas so he had a, a really good draw you know of talent and different bands and all kind of stuff and it got you know it was competitive to get on there he got submissions all the time and we were really lucky because at the time um because we were in high school and stuff patrick and i had gone to a school uh, a high school together and then keith and john and them had graduated from a, a high school another high school in town so we kind of had a built-in audience at our parties and stuff when we first started playing we kind of automatically had a, a built-in audience that would come out and support us because when a few kids from each place showed up and they and brought some of their friends then it, it turned into like a big bigger crowd you know and uh, so they started calling in the radio station and requesting our song, and we actually charted without a record deal. Really? They got us a, a, a regional, you know, we got in like the top five or something on the radio station for requests and all that stuff. So uh, this was kind of over a period of time, but that's kind of how it happened. That that DJ played a huge part in us uh, getting a record deal and building a following. He played us on the radio a lot, man. People recognized us and... Um, you know, we just owe him a debt of gratitude for giving us a break and putting us on the, the station. And, man, there was tons of bands, too, back then. There was a lot of activity in Memphis. We weren't the only band getting signed. I mean, there was a lot of producers, uh, showcases, and, and record labels were coming there. The rock scene was pretty cool. It kind of overflowed out of the Sunset Strip kind of vibe. We were kind of feeling that over in, in the Memphis. But we got a thing called Bill Street. You know, it's kind of a real touristy um, area of town and it's a bunch of uh, a blues band stuff it's the the 4th uh, 4th Avenue and Bill right there is kind of like the crossroads of of uh, the blues you know um, it's where um, um, WC Handy the trumpeteer you know came and played blues and all that kind of stuff but anyway we grew up playing there and there was one venue down there that was a, about a 900 seat uh, theater. They had taken all the seats out, so it was just a big old open room. But it kind of had the, the slanted, you know, flooring like a theater does, and it had a, a stage in it. And uh, we played there. There was a, a guy named Mike Glenn, who was the kind of the manager of the building, and 
he started promoting local shows, man. He gave us a place to go. Like, underage kids really didn't have anywhere to go see music. You had to be 21 to get in all those uh, blues bars and stuff down there. So he started doing all-ages shows in the Daisy. And uh, Malcolm Riker, that, that DJ, started sponsoring a show down there once a week or something. And people from all over the, the Mid-South would drive in. Bands would come in from all over the place. And they had a local music store provide the back line. And you could jump out there and play, I think it was like three songs or 15 minutes. And then they'd pull the plug on you and put the next band up. But it was a great way for you to build an audience. People from all over the place came and you could showcase yourself and, you know, get some experience. We were all little kids, man. We didn't know what we were doing. The first time we played there, I don't even think I looked at the audience. I stared at my feet. I was so scared all the time I was out there. But, but after playing there a few times, it got to where, you know, we were running all over the stage and jumping out in the audience. And, I mean, it just, your confidence, you know, the, the building would be full. It'd be packed full of kids, all about the same age. And uh, they were just rowdy and wanted somewhere to go to listen to, you know, some music. And they provided that for us. So Malcolm Riker, that DJ, and then that, that Mike Glenn guy, we still see him to this day. I still go down there and I bump into him every once in a while. Um and we tell him how much he came to our video shoot that we did for that Son of a Prodigal Son song and we got to see him and talk to him and uh, we just owe him a lot you know it was a lot of people that helped us man when we were little we were uh, we were trying to figure it out we just loved playing and singing and and uh, they were uh, just kind of you know, mentor type guys that just said, hey, you know, I see an opportunity here, man. I can make a ton of money. You know, I, I remember us, once we were a little bit older and we still played there, we were uh, breaking records on uh, selling kegs and stuff. He, he would come in our dressing room and go, man, y'all broke a record tonight. We've never sold that much beer. And, you know, I mean, he was happy. You know, he was jumping around. We were having a ball. Everybody was making some money and having a good time. And, uh, it was just awesome. But you were kind of asking about the name of the record. That's where it came from, Bill Street in Memphis. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, so it's really famous. It's the home of the blues. And uh, we were kind of, you know, super influenced by the blues. I'm from down in the Delta in Mississippi. Uh, I grew up listening. To, my family listened to, like, Mississippi John Hurt. And we, of course, played gospel music. I grew up Southern Baptist and, you know, went to church and all that kind of stuff when I growing up. My, my family did. And... So we were influenced by gospel and blues and R&B, and uh, of course the band, when I met them, it was real funny, man. I was kind of a, um, learning to sing and everything through my aunt. She was like probably my biggest influence. She taught me to play guitar, and she turned me on to some, you know, things like um, some singer-songwriter type people. She was teaching me on acoustic, so it's like Neil Young, James Taylor, and all that kind of stuff. Well, then I got into some rock. She turned me on to some like... Uh, some Leonard Skinner and uh, Foreigner and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of what there was a record she had one time that the biggest all time influence that she ever put on me was Kiss she got Destroyer when I was probably in the first grade I was probably like six six or seven and she was ten years older than me so she was a teenager when when this record came out it was probably around 76 or something and uh, I remember her she played uh, God of Thunder. There you and go. it had those little demon voices at the front. I didn't know it was little kids back then, but yeah. 
it, it, it scared me to death, you know, I like ran out of the room, and I was like, what is that, I gotta go back in there, and I went back in, and I mean, we, mem- we memorized that record, man, Detroit Rock City, Shout Out Loud, I mean, all those records, and then I started getting into, you know, Hotter Than Hell, and I went back to the originals, you yeah. know, the first three originals, and then Kiss Alive came out, and I thought I was freaking in the concert, man. I was on my bed, <laughs> doing a drum solo in 100,000 years, and I mean, I thought I was going to be Peter Chris forever. I, I just loved it. That record, that Alive, probably is one of the biggest ones. I had nothing to lose. I used to love that song. All of them were good back then. I, I, I got into Kiss big time. Oh, yeah. And it was crazy, it was crazy because... Uh, I couldn't join the KISS Army, my, my parents wouldn't let me join it, and I lived way out in the woods, you know, way out in the sticks, and my cousin and I, he was about a, a couple of years older than me, we loved KISS, and there was one other dude that lived about a quarter mile away from us on the Scrabble Road, <laughs> his mom let him join the KISS Army, and we would just freak out, man, he would he would call us and tell us that he got pamphlets, and we would just go and just lay on the floor and turn the records on and look at, you know, it was belt buckles, and t-shirts and comic books and just all kind of stuff that would come to his house man we just couldn't believe it yeah and uh it was just they were probably the biggest influence i mean rock wise at the very beginning when i was just a little kid you know and then as we got older you know i was influenced by a lot of other things keeping them when i met them that was a joke i was going to tell you a minute ago i showed up over to meet them to kind of audition i guess patrick had seen me at a mall uh, and came up to me, and I, I was kind of singing with a little neighborhood band. We had entered a, uh, a band competition uh, at school, and uh, and he came up and he said, "Hey, man, looking for a singer? You want to come over and try out?" You know, at the band. And I just thought they were so cool. They were older than me. I thought they were like professional. You know, back then I didn't know anything about them or anything, but I knew that they had been playing and stuff, and were kind of seasoned. You know, yeah. and. Uh, so I went over there, I took my acoustic, and I kind of walked in and was doing like a little singer-songwriter kind of thing. I, I started playing the Eagles, like Desperado and some Journey or something, I think. There and they go. said, man, that's cool. But they go, man, you know any Cheap Trick or Aerosmith? You know Rush? You know any of that stuff? <laughs> and they just started pushing me right away. And I said, well, man, yeah, I know. I don't know if I can get through it, but let's run it, you know, one time and I'll see. And so immediately, the very first day I met them, we just clicked. Everybody, we laughed, we talked. They threw, you know, toys in the attic at me. They did, they played 2112 by Rush. <laughs> they did, uh, I want you to want me. They did, can't get all enough of your love. All the classics, that, yeah. That. All the classics, yeah. Yeah, all the classics. And uh, we did a couple of Bad Company songs. We did Zeppelin. I mean, it was just, we had so much fun. And from that minute on, we just kind of took off, man. We just kind of, we did, uh, learned a handful of cover songs, and then we just started writing our own stuff right away, because we were kind of like, man, we're kind of butchering some of these songs, why don't we just write our own stuff, you know? <laughs> just kind of try to do that, and that's what kind of led us to, you know, doing the EP, and, and we won some studio time, so we got in and recorded at a real studio, and, you know, it was just, it was such a learning experience, man, it was kind of like being in a movie, honestly, man. <laughs> it, it was just how things were happening was just so weird. Keith and I, my mom was a real estate agent, and we used to cut grass for the property she had. You know, Keith had a pickup, and we put a couple of lawnmowers in there and go, and that was how we were kind of earning a little bit of money. And uh, I remember 
Jackie and I riding around just going, man, wouldn't it be crazy if we like got to go in the studio and record and, and we did something and people started listening to it and, you know, just dreaming, man. Just yeah. big blue sky. And, man, all that stuff started happening. And we couldn't believe it. We were like, oh, my God, this is incredible. This is insane. So we just, we never took it for granted, though. We just kind of went. We had a great time. We partied. We knew that it could probably go away at any second. So we just said, man, let's just make the most of the, the time we have together. But um, we just kind of started thinking about that. For this record, we started thinking about, you know, we were so influenced by all the blues people and the, the experiences that we had down on Bill Street. Uh, we kind of took the blues stuff and took it a different direction, you know. Yeah. When I met Keith and them at that rehearsal, they were real into, like, Iron Maiden. They loved the Iron Maiden, the double guitars, and yeah. uh, and uh, and Judas Priest. They were into some real heavy stuff, and I was real different. I was kind of coming from, like, a bluesy kind of pop thing almost, I guess. I don't know, but it was different than them. So I think that's why we clicked. And... Um, and we took that, and then we just kind of used, mushed all that stuff together to kind of come up with the way that we sounded, you know. But it, it is definitely a sound, the four of us, when we're together, that's that's the sound, that's the Tora Tora thing. That's how, that's how Tora Tora was born, I guess, yeah. Um, I first heard of Tora Tora on MTV, of course, back then, walking shoes, you know. How did you feel when you first saw Tora Tora on MTV? How did you feel? Man... We couldn't believe it. We watched Ted Banger's Ball every week. We were like super fans. We loved it. Yeah. And then when our video went on there, we couldn't believe it. I mean, it was the most surreal experience. And then we actually went and got on the show, the Ted Banger's Ball, and it was... Yeah. We were sitting across from Adam Curry the first time, and then we saw Ricky Rockman the second time we were there, but... I think we went a couple of times. We went and hosted. They used to have a thing called the Hard 60, and we went and hosted that. Yeah. And we couldn't believe it, because we were watching it in the afternoons, you know. <laughs> and we would say, we just watched this, and now we're sitting here where those people are sitting, you know. And uh, it was just such a wild experience. It felt like a dream, you know. You're sitting there looking, and I was kind of looking at Adam Curry, just going, wow, look at this dude's hair. What in the world is going on? You know, I mean, you're yeah. just like going, I can't believe I'm sitting across from this dude. Uh, wow. But they were really cool. They were just, you know, super down to earth. They knew that we were kind of green and, and new and trying to figure it out. And so they, they were really nice to us or they were talking to us and stuff. And we just had a great experience, man. This The Bastards of Bill thing was kind of just dedicated to, you know, to that. We kind of we kind of took the blues thing and, and, and the rock thing that we had been influenced by and kind of melded all that together and... We just felt like it was a good title for the record. We had thrown around a couple of things, and that one just kept coming up. We just kept saying, man, that one just feels right, man. We've kind of, we are kind of bastards of Bill. We kind of just yeah. do our blues thingy, but it's kind of rock, too, and it's, it's, we have influences. We listen to all different genres, music, and styles and everything, and we just said we feel like that's a good fit, and, and it, mostly it was dedicated to all the people that supported us, man. Every song on that record was inspired by all those experiences, man. That first song, Sons of Zebedee, was about our audience, man. About, yeah. um, it was just about people getting together and not judging each other. You could do anything you wanted to. You know, we had a rehearsal place down in Memphis, a warehouse, 
and we used to throw these parties in it. Our guitar player's dad owned a glue factory, and he stored some 55-gallon drums, empty drums, in this warehouse, and we asked him if we could rehearse in there. And so the first thing we did when we moved in there is we pushed all those barrels to one end of the building. It was a, you know, about a, I don't know, 100 feet long warehouse or something, and we stuffed all those things down there and put some plywood on it, built the stage, (laughs) put a a PA up, and man, we started hanging uh, carpet on the wall, we hung some black trash bags all over the wall and off the stage, and the next thing we knew, we had a venue, and so we would throw these parties, man, and people would come from all over the place, that DJ would plug us on the radio, he'd go, go to the warehouse, I mean, he was doing advertising and everything for us, and people would come, and what we did is, uh, we hired a couple of football players from uh, Ole Miss, from down in the, uh, Oxford, they would come and be security at the door, so anybody that got too out of it or got in a fight, you know, there was a lot of turf things back in when you were young, you know, those different high schools with somebody look at somebody's girlfriend the wrong way or say something they didn't like and the next thing they'd be tangled up and so we had those guys they would just grab them there was a big old sand pit out the side of that building they just <laughs> pick them up and toss them out the side we'd just say make sure they don't you know hurt each other too bad but don't let them be in here where, where all the people were having a good time <laughs> and so man we we charged at the door uh, people came in, uh, they could bring anything they wanted to, you could do anything you wanted to in the building. They'd bring lawn chairs, coolers, they were drinking. We set up uh, sand tubs, you know, little five-gallon buckets for them to smoke, and, you know, we tried not to burn the building down, and uh, we actually showcased in that building for record companies, like four or five record uh, A&R people came in there and watched us one night, uh-huh. and we built them a VIP area. There was uh, some offices in the front of the building, and it had uh, stairs with a with a overlook onto the thing. And so we put our board up, up there to make sure nobody ever spilled anything on it. And so we went up there and built a bar, and we put them in a VIP area. We got them there before we opened the doors before anybody got there. Oh. And they just watched organically what happened. And it was so crazy, man. It was hilarious. People were dragging chairs and coolers and drinking and smoking and people were throwing up and going. I mean, it was like out of a movie, man. It was it was hilarious. Well, but you guys just... Those things... You guys also turned around. We just, we just enjoyed ourselves. And it was a place, you know, like I was telling you before, there weren't a lot of places for you to go underage and see music. So we kind of provided that place we didn't do a lot of them because we tried not to get the police to show up you know we were always kind of weary the the warehouse was right next door to our our coliseum where all the concerts happened so a lot of times we'd throw a party the night of the concert people would go in and see the show and then they come back and some of the overflow parking was in our in our uh, parking lot and we would open the bay door of that warehouse and start playing, and people would just start filing in, man. You know, I mean, it would just get packed in that place. Yeah, and uh, it was crazy. People were, they'd sit on their cars outside, they ordered pizzas, they threw frisbees. I mean, it was just, you know, the whole parking lot was hanging out partying. And then uh, when the party was over, we would have to go out and clean the parking lot up. We would take one of those 55 gallon drums, put it back and pick up, and we'd have to pick up all the beer bottles and pizza bottle, you know, pizza things, because 18 wheelers would start rolling in there to the other bay doors, that, you know, the other offices that were in there. So we'd have to have it cleaned up before they came at, you know, five in the morning or whatever. Wow, what a so, story, man, what a story. It was crazy. Would you say, uh, 
Was it easier for a new band to make it back in 89, 90, uh, a new band, uh, or is it easier nowadays with the internet? What would you say? Man, they're both challenging. Uh, we're in a different world now, man. Yeah. Um, the, the digital realm rushed in and it gave us direct access to an audience. I mean, you're, you're a, a brand, you're a global entity, you know, in, in business immediately, man. As soon as you turn on your social media and your website or whatever those tools are that you want to use to access people, um, I, I, I see all the potential, I guess, nowadays for the young bands. Um, you know, they're not selling physical products like we were back then. That was a different kind of business model, you know, because selling records and all that kind of stuff generated a little bit different royalty rates and stuff than you get off of a streaming platform or something nowadays. Um, but you have more uh, opportunities with different revenue streams than you did. You know, for us, I, and I guess really honestly, I know I'm kind of not answering your question straight on, but okay. it's just it's just a different it's a different approach. Everybody is an entrepreneur. Yeah. That's the way we were back back in the day. The thing is, you gotta have customers. You gotta have fans. That's the way that you make it. Yeah. So back yeah. in the day with us, we had we had less resources. I guess we we had like MTV and, and major radio stations, and that was kind of our two platforms that we had. Nowadays, they have all kind of different ways to access their audience. You don't have to get everybody in the world. In, in today's model, you just need a, a super fan. You need a, a small group of people that'll follow you around and help support you. Uh, back in our day, you had to like sell. We had, you know, our street dates and stuff. You know, like it used to be Tuesdays a long time ago. Your record would come out, and we would try to build build a story, like, you know, behind our band or behind the single. You know, the videos that we had out or whatever. And hopefully we would sell a lot of records on that first day. I think today, uh, the way bands approach it is more about, uh, instead of getting just one big cash out day, they're trying to build longevity. They're trying to have like a, a long tail on their career where they can grab a small group of people and you just carry them with you for a long time and keep growing that crowd, you know? Um, but both of them are challenging. You know, that the thing is, uh, getting a record deal and stuff is actually like when you go to work. Or, yeah. or at least in the old old business model. Um, uh, nowadays, it's a little bit different. You're kind of in control of all the content, and you kind of select the people that you're going to work with. You know, well, like art. You know, your manager or your PR person, or you can kind of control that and control your cost. You know, it makes you a little more, I guess, efficient. The yeah. scary part about a long time ago is it was expensive you know recording in the studio was expensive shooting videos was expensive because we didn't have the technology they do now yeah um so videos that we were shooting back in the day were you know hundred thousand dollars or something to get the, the equipment there and the crew and all that kind of stuff and you can do that for a really minimal amount of money now with i mean people are shooting videos on their phone and you know all that kind of stuff and it's just a, it's a different approach, but it's exciting for me. I get so excited about the new generation of, of people that are doing music, uh, that are excited about it as artists, as content creators, and all that kind of stuff, because I see the access to the audience and to the resources that they have where it's like, man, it's totally doable. You yeah. can do this and sell to people, you know, build an audience and be engaged with them and we love that we love talking to, to the fans and to the audience and 
we we uh, we had to get acclimated to this. You know, we kind of came through and the digital realm kind of rushed in. It was after our band had even happened. We were kind of more, you know, man on the street. We had to go on tour and go meet people and hang out and kind of go to those markets over and over and visit. And yeah. now it's like I can access these people. <laughs> right. And I still talk to people online, man. It's hilarious. <laughs> that are telling me stories and of things that we did and shooting pictures to me and stuff. It's just, man, it just makes my heart, you know, smile because I'm like, man, those are some of the greatest memories, you know. Wow. We just, we had, a, we had a ball everywhere we went. We, we partied our brains out and had a great time. And, uh, and we still feel like, even though we're, you know, we, we're waves down the road than, than where we were back then, we still feel like we have things that we want to say and, and we're still inspired by music uh, and by the technology that's around. You know, during this, this the pandemic, I haven't seen the band. I've seen Keith, my guitar player, a couple of times. Um, but we communicate and trade files and stuff through, uh, you know, through emails and everything. Yeah. So, and I can talk to him through, we do Zoom calls and do co-writes and things like that. Um, so that part is really awesome that we have the technology to do that. But yeah, for up and coming bands, the, that's, the, that's the flip side of what I was just saying is everybody has access to all this, all these tools. Everybody can record at home. Everybody can, you know, put out the distribution. We used to need a record company to get our records out everywhere. Now I can just push a button and everybody's got it, you know. Right. Um, but, but you're competing with everybody else. So you really have to, you know, you, you really have to kind of have something that stands out and you got to try to work on your, your craft, your songwriting and, and the quality of your recordings and all that kind of stuff. It's really important nowadays. But, uh, but it is cool. I mean, you just need a kick-ass mic and some good technology and you can get in there and sing and record your records. And yeah. Um, it's cool, man. How did, uh, here's a different question. Dancing with a gypsy uh, how did that end up on the soundtrack for for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? How did that happen? It um, A and M was doing the soundtrack for the movie, and so we had shot four songs to them. Uh, we had done a, a four songs. I think it was like "Loves a Bitch" and "Dancing with a Gypsy" was one of them. "Phantom Rider" might have been one of them. Um, but we had kind of recut a couple of songs off the, the EP. We had a little five-song EP cassette that was out first. And, I mean, that's taking you back a cassette that's a long time ago. Yeah. But, um, but uh, we submitted that, and they asked us if we would, um, you know, be cool with it going on the soundtrack. And, of course, we just completely flipped out. We couldn't believe it. <laughs> um, it's still, it's such a cool memory. I remember going to the, the movie theater with my friends and, and watching it and trying to listen to the song and then seeing the credits at the end. And, uh, man, most recently, my oldest son, for, for my birthday, he gave me, uh, there was a reissue of that soundtrack, and it's called Wild Stallions. It was the band, you know, Keanu Reeves' band in the movie. Uh-huh. They, they re-released the soundtrack, and... Uh, and it's in different packaging and everything. And my son uh, wrote that record label that repackaged it, the, the vinyl, and he gave it to me for my birthday, man. It was really cool. Oh, wow. We got to, you know, put it on the, the record player and listen to it, and it just brings back a lot of memories. That was a really, really early song for us. We, we wrote that, you know, before we got uh, production deals or record deals or anything. We had that song that had kind of been around. Love's a Bitch was an early one. Wasted Love, uh, Dance with Gypsy, and Phantom Rider, of course, was the one that kind of broke us out of Memphis. That was the one that, it went top five on radio and 
the guy that signed us to A&M told us, the A&R guy, he said, I got off the airplane, I got my rental car, and I turned the radio on, and your song, Phantom Rider, was playing. And he said, I knew I was going to sign you. Oh, wow. Great. That was the story he told us. It's a badass song. Great song. One of my favorites, for sure. Now, uh, here's a little uh, little downside to the, the interview. Why did the band stop playing back in 94, the first time, I guess? What happened there? We actually recorded uh, a whole project, and we were right at the end of the recording process, and we were getting ready to go into the mastering phase. And um, the, the record company, A&R Rep, had got a job offer. He had, he had signed Extreme and Soundgarden, and we were his third band, and both of those other bands had exploded. Extreme had that ballad, More Than Words, uh-huh. and then at the Soundgarden, their whole record blew yeah. up. I mean, they were just exploding. Oh, yeah. And he, he had an offer, another record label, Interscope Records, came to him and asked him if he would come over and do A&R for them. And he actually shut us down. We were really close to him. Um, he had changed our whole life, and but he told us, he said, this is a, a job opportunity that I can't pass up. And of course, we were under contract with A&M. We couldn't go with him. We had to, you know, we were going to stay where we were. And um, uh, so we got to sign a new A&R person. And so it's kind of like a restructuring thing, I guess, in, in hindsight. But yeah. from, in you know, in basic terms, we kind of lost our voice in the corporate wheel. He was kind of our connection to the, to the record label. Okay. And, of course, there was a new guy that was really nice that showed up, but he wasn't invested like the other guy. I mean, he was just, we were kind of just assigned to him, and, you know, we got to know him and hang out with him, but it, it wasn't like starting out from the very beginning with this one cat, you know. And, um, um, yeah, we just decided, they, they let us know that they were going to shelf the record, uh, which meant it wasn't going to ever come out, or at least at that time. And... Um, And as that was happening, um, our guitar player, he was the, the first one of us to be married. He had a son, and he just said, man, you know, I think I want to take a break for a minute and just not go back on the road for a second. I kind of want to just be with my family. And we were like, cool, man, let's just take a break. And if we get back together, you know, great. If not, we never had any kind of big blowout or it wasn't any kind of weird breakup or anything. We just said, we'll get back together. And I thought it would maybe be a month or six weeks, but it was actually seven years before we got on the stage together. Seven years, okay. We did a uh, we did a benefit in Memphis. One of our crew guys had an aneurysm, and he made a full recovery, but he had a bunch of medical bills. And so we decided to get together to raise some money for him. And we played a little bitty club in Memphis. I'll never forget it. We had a ball. And we stayed up really late the night before, and I'll never forget it. The next morning, my phone kept ringing and ringing and ringing, my voice message. Back then, we had the voice machine, you know, it was kept going off. And finally, somebody came on, and they just said, turn your television on, wherever you are, turn your TV on. And I turned it on, and it was the towers. The oh, first tower had yeah. been hit. Yeah, And uh, so I'll never yeah. forget it. I'll never forget that. Um, but anyway, we, we continued to see each other. We were still creative and talked to each other about music and all that, but we just weren't touring or traveling. We kind of, all of us got focused on our families, you know. Uh, around the end of the 90s is when I met my wife, and uh, I was still kind of, I kept singing and playing after tour. I did some solo stuff and all that, and I just decided I wanted to come off the road, man. I just said, man, I'm kind of fried. Yeah. I was playing, like, honky-tonks and stuff like that, and I just said, man, I think I want to come home and and just take a 
break and I actually went back to college and got my bachelor's and my master's degree in the entertainment industry so I could maybe help young people that are um, doing it. So I came here to Nashville. I worked at the, for Sony and RCA at the record labels. Uh, I worked in music publishing and I'm a professor of entertainment business now. I teach little, uh, young artists and stuff about the music industry. Yeah, I saw that. I saw an interview where you talked about that. So are you still a, a teacher? Yeah, I work at a, a company, the organization is called SAE Institute, and I'm the entertainment business program chair there. Nice, wow. So it's a lot of fun. It's a different world. I'm dealing with a lot of people that are recording on their uh, laptops. You know, they're doing hip-hop and pop and stuff like that. But uh, the basic fundamental stuff to it, I've just how to get started in a business and everything, or it's still the same as it was when I started a long time ago. It's just in the digital realm, you know. Now, what uh, what does Anthony Quarter listen to? What's on your playlist? Back in the day, I would say what's on your iPod. That that doesn't exist anymore, huh? <laughs> yeah, I still listen to a lot of the same stuff. We listen to. Um, I still listen to Zeppelin, all the classics, Aerosmith and all that stuff. We've been listening to, I listen to the Black Pumas, I listen to Marcus King, we were listening to Black Crows last night, my son was getting into them. Uh, I've got three boys, uh, and my youngest one, the other two are off at college now, but my youngest one is uh, 11th grade, and he came in and played me some new track by the Black Crows that he likes. Um, oh, wow. But I listen to everything, man, I listen to everything from... Uh, Ray Charles and Anna James to, you know, um, all the normal stuff we listen to from our era, all the kicks, and uh, I love kicks, man. Those guys are still awesome. Oh, yeah. uh, Tesla. Yeah. We listen to their new stuff. Um, we listen to a lot of different things. It's pretty cool, man. I, I like um, kind of listening to everything. I, up here in Nashville, you know, when I first moved here, I was working at for the record label, I moved up here and I was working actually in the country world. And um, that was kind of interesting. And then I, I worked for a, a Christian rock label. And uh, it was really crazy. Some of the bands were, uh, sounded like, you know, Stone Temple Pilots or, you know, Black Sabbath or whatever. They sounded super heavy. Really? And it, it was closer to kind of the Taurus stuff. You know, it was more rock. I kind of went out of the country world over there and then, I ended up going into publishing, but so I listen to a little bit of everything, man. I'm I'm kind of all over the place with the stuff I've been listening to lately. I've been listening to uh, there was uh, the voting for the Grammys came along, and that's, a lot of times I start kind of digging in on some of those yeah. records and things that are up for that. So, but I still love to rock, man. I, I still love that. Keith and us, you know, all of us still love to get together and crank up. Um, Keith's writing a lot of music right now. That's kind of what we've been focused on. We're promoting a, a, an EP we let out last summer. It's unplugged. We recorded that in Memphis. It's got five tracks on it. And um, we had never done that before. We've always been electric. We've never done a, an acoustic show like that. So that was kind of a unique uh, setting and um, some cool recordings. And so, you know, we got some surprises for this year, some of the, some more things, some outtakes and things like that that we're going to be dropping out to kind of hold people over until we get some more recordings out. So That was one of my questions right there. Uh, what's next for you guys? Uh, what can fans expect from, from Tor Tor and, and Anthony? But, uh, yeah, man. Yeah. We are, we're writing, we're recording. Um, we're probably, I guess you could say we're kind of in pre-production phase. We're not in a hurry. Uh, with all this COVID stuff, we want to be really careful. And yeah. uh, we don't want to make anybody uh, 
uh, ourselves or anybody sick, put anybody in danger. Uh, Patrick is definitely a concern for us. He's a high risk because of his uh, medical condition he had a while back. So yeah. he has to be very careful. Um, but yeah, if, if I'm talking to everybody right now, I'd just say, hey man, we got a stack of songs that we've already, uh, you know, been working on and written. Now we're just trying to beat them. That's kind of how we've always done stuff. We kind of get a, a, a batch or two together and then we keep just kind of wood, woodshedding out ideas and stuff until we feel like we've got some good representations of the things we want to say and do. And We're super inspired, man. Before COVID, pre-COVID, we did about 20... 20 or 25 shows across the country. We went all the way from Maine to the Whiskey in L.A. on the Strip, where we played, you know, 20 years ago. Wow. And we just got super inspired, man. I'm not kidding. We saw so many people. They were walking up. They had our T-shirts on. They had their records. They were singing the words to the music. They. It's just the most incredible feeling to think about all those experiences that we shared together. And uh, we don't take that for granted. We know that we're really lucky that we're still able you know to get out and do it and play and we just uh wish everybody um uh safety and 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 health and and you know happiness we just want them to be careful i'm very hopeful with the vaccines and stuff coming out now hopefully things and uh maybe closer to the end of of summer that things can start opening back up i know we have uh rock timber that was on the books last year uh they got postponed um That'll be coming up. Hopefully, I've, I've seen them uh, announcing that you know they had transitioned the dates or whatever to that. Yeah. And so we've got a few things on the books. Uh, we'll just see how this uh, this pandemic is, you know, push pause for everybody. So we just got to see how this thing all all pans out. But um, you know, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you, man, talking to me today. This has been really fun to just talk to you and give me a platform to get out in front of people and. We just want the, the people that are listening uh, that support us, that, that we can't do it without them, and, and that we love them, and we appreciate all the support that they're giving us. So, Awesome. It's a pleasure uh, talking to you, Anthony. Thank you for making time. And uh, uh, that was one of my questions. Would you like to send a message to your fans listening to this podcast? I guess I think you Yes, just, yeah. yes, man. Please reach out to us on social media. Uh, you can find us at tortormusic.com. Uh, but we're on social media. It's Keith and I. Uh, we're on there on Instagram and uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, and uh, you can send us emails uh, at tortorrocks at gmail.com. If you want to reach out and send us an email, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and um, we just look forward to seeing you in person, man. There's nothing like being there in person and, and uh, you know, having some drinks and spilling some stuff and getting loud and jamming out, man. We're, we're all about that. Awesome. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for making time. And uh, uh, keep rocking and uh, keep up the, the good work, the good deeds. And uh, Yeah. Awesome. That sounds great, man. It's such a pleasure talking to you, man. Much obliged. And great history right there by uh, Torah Torah, as told by none other than Anthony Corder, vocalist, frontman for Torah Torah. And he speaks of the band's history. And uh, what a history, man. Wow. And uh, very down-to-earth, man. These guys uh, don't show any rock stardom when you talk to them, um, you know. So uh, that's great. That's great. I mean, that they're accessible and, 
they're very cool people man you know they're just human beings like we all are and uh they just happen to play make some great music you know so uh keep rocking torah torah uh thank you anthony uh, on behalf of myself james and everyone here at j-rocks metal zone and thank you to all our listeners uh in europe and australia overseas south america canada and the U.S., of course, and to all the supporters in Texas, Eagle Pass, San Antonio, thank you guys on behalf of myself, James. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. Don't forget to share share our podcast in the, the video or just the audio uh, form. Okay, so thank you guys. And uh, don't forget to keep it metal. That metal interview.